0: I'm a pastor at the Church of the Resurrection, which meets in this space on Sunday evenings uh, here at Christ Our Shepherd, and I know that there are a number of people from Christ Our Shepherd here as well, and a lot of guests from elsewhere. I want to welcome you here tonight. Um, It's our privilege to have Dr. Christian Hofreiter with us. He was here in D.C. uh, working and assisting with the pastoral team at the Church of the Resurrection a number of years ago. Um, and went to study at Oxford, did a master's degree there, two masters, and, and did doctoral studies. His doctoral studies took him uh, into thinking about something that's really hard uh, from the Old Testament, this question of the the genocide texts in the Old Testament. And um, that work eventually led to a book that's published on Oxford University Press. and. Um, This dissertation now is made available to us, not only in book form, but live tonight through his presentation. And what we've talked about having Christian do is to come up and and just take us through the material um, in summary form, but with enough detail that we can really follow the arguments. He's gonna do that with us for about an hour, and then there will be time for Q&A afterwards for about a half an hour. Um, so, I hope that you'll be able to follow along and, um, and think of good questions to ask him, and after his presentation, there'll be an opportunity to come to the microphone and to, uh, to fire away. So uh, Christian, I was able to visit with him in Vienna, where he lives. My wife and I saw him this summer um, for a, a lovely day, a full tour of the city, got to see his wife, Helen, and his children, Hannah and Samuel. Um, and they have a wonderful life and do wonderful work in Vienna. It's great to welcome you to our city again, Christian. Uh, please come and teach us what you've learned in studying these uh, these very hard passages. Welcome.
1: Great. Thank you, Dan, for this kind introduction. And is this the sound all right? Is this- bearable? We're, we're, we'll get them what what should I do, do I, what's that move this further down like like this is this better yeah. okay excellent very good we, we figured out one thing so uh, so this evening it was the choice uh, watch the gnats or we'll talk about... Old Testament genocide. You've chosen the easy, entertaining option. <laughs> Less hard-rending. I commend you for that. So, uh, so it's 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 uh, it's a joy to to be able to talk about this subject. It uh, obviously captured my mind for many years uh, because I worked on it for my doctoral dissertation. As I was thinking about at the end of the master's degree, what I would want to. Uh, study, devote several years of my life towards, I thought, I want something that is somehow, that somehow matters, that somehow is a question that actually other people ask, not just people writing a dissertation on it. So um, as Dan said, I will, I will take you through some of the arguments, some of my thinking on it, some of my reading on it. And um, already, I'll have to tell you now, there won't be an easy, clean and neat three-point answer. At the end, so if if this is what you are hoping for or expecting, um, maybe better watch the nets after all. <laughs> so so, but hopefully you will have learned uh, something about the Bible, about our God, about how to read the Bible, and about uh, also how to be part of the church and what we can learn uh, from the church. So I am um, going to um, make the assumption that. Many of you are vaguely familiar at least with the texts that we are discussing. Um, the, the, what I've looked at is sort of biblical text involving divinely commanded violence. and I tried to talk to take the, the most egregious examples, because I thought if we can find a way to read these texts well, then perhaps we can read other texts well as well. So I thought that might be the most difficult text. and essentially, Uh, In the biblical narrative, those texts uh, come after the people of Israel are freed from Egyptian slavery, they are in the desert, they are given commands to take the promised land. The promised land is promised to the descendants of Abram, but it's not empty. People are living there, seven nations, the Canaanites, and the command is given, go in and don't negotiate it, don't make peace treaties, wipe them out, root and branch, so, it's, it's tough reading when you actually read these commands. I'll give you a bit of a, a taste, just to refresh your memory. Uh, in Deuteronomy 7 would be a classical text for it. Where can I? It's also small, getting old. Um, there we go, Deuteronomy 7.1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Destroy them totally is the translation of cherem, Hebrew expression which means annihilate, devote to destruction. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Um, It's repeated in Deuteronomy 20. This is um, warfare legislation where it says, uh, first with some you should make peace, but then it says, uh, however in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes, completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not leave anything alive. And then you get to the narrative part, the story of the conquest related mostly in the book of Joshua, which follows Deuteronomy in the canon uh, and describes uh, how the Israelites fight several battles and then the most famous battle is obviously Jericho, the first city taken and they go around the city in procession and they raise their voices and the walls come tumbling down and then the children's version of the story stops and the walls came tumbling down and so, but what happened next, if you read on, men, women and children, young and old, were killed. Um, So there's a reason the song doesn't continue. Um, and, uh, and then if you actually read, especially chapter 10 and chapter 11 of Joshua, there's city after city is listed, and it's really, it is tough to read. I won't perhaps read it out now because you've already gained the taste, but basically says, and he left no one alive here, and they left no one alive there, and they made no captives, and they left no one, uh, left no one alive there. So it's city after city after city. So it makes for really blood-curdling reading, chilling reading. Uh, And it's, uh, I don't know how often you experienced this text being selected for uh, uh, the, the readings and then being read here. And then, you know, the list of the ten cities all wiped out. And then the reader says, this is the word of the Lord. And everybody goes, thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's just, it's tough, right? It's tough. And then, of course, when we say this is the word of the Lord, we speak, we affirm the whole canon. So, brief introduction, yeah, you can uh, read these texts more, but this is kind of, this is uh, the starting point. And so my, own, my approach uh, was not to try and think of a particularly clever and novel way how I might solve this issue uh, by myself, but to look at what Christians have said about these texts over the centuries and indeed the two millennia of Christians reading the scriptures, and in particular what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And uh, this was fascinating. I loved it because it allowed me to do church history, which I love, and also to see how the Bible has shaped the church and how the church has been shaped by, the, by reading the Bible, wrestling with the Bible, and the way the church has done so over the centuries. And uh, I discovered that there are a number of different ways that, in history, people who were followers of Jesus or Christians or or Christian leaders uh, or hoped to be such um, have approached these texts. And I'll just give you the the main ways that I've discovered in in history how people have read them, and I'll make a few comments on them. So, in terms of understanding why these texts are so hard for us, sometimes I, I find it helpful to clarify it in in some easy to remember points. And I think the reason why we as Christians in particular find these texts so difficult often is that there are three premises, I think, that we all fundamentally believe in and hold to be true, but that these texts challenge and they seem to push us to modify or give up at least one of those premises and the premises are as follows, God is good, not particularly controversial claim among Christians. Second, the Bible is true, obviously needs explanation, what do you mean by the true, true in what sense and so on, but historically, uncontroversial claim in the Christian church. Thirdly, genocide is atrocious, it's an atrocity. In the 21st century, usually not particularly controversial. Um, you know, wiping out entire people groups. That's why America goes to war. That's why the UN goes to war, if that happens. It's a crime against humanity. So those are things that we, you know, very few of us would say, oh, no, no genocide, you know, can't you know, you, gotta, you know, it's a different angle. So we feel this is viscerally felt by most of us, if not all of us, and then of course, Four is an observation, according to the Bible, God commanded and commended genocide. He commanded it and he commended it. Now, if God is good and if the Bible truly records what God said and did and commended, then you know what are we to do with this moral intuition that genocide is atrocious? So I think that creates that tension that we feel that we don't want to give up the goodness of God or the truth of the Bible, but we also find it very hard to say, well, you know, genocide, perhaps we should rethink. So I think that that's the starting point, I think that helps me analyze it. Uh, It goes, there's an assumption in that, that a good being, God, would never command or commend an atrocity. Now that, of course, that premise could also be debated, discussed, but I think that that is also necessary for there to be this tension. And um, now I, th- I think this analysis is uh, borne out, uh, also in the way various people have addressed uh, the tension over the millennia, over the centuries. So the, f- the first approach was to deny premise one, just to say, well, we'll deny the goodness of God. Uh, it's a very early approach, second century. It's connected to Marcion. Uh, one of the most famous um, heretics of uh, history, and essentially he said, "It just proves that the God of the Jewish people is not the good and loving Father of Jesus Christ. They're two different gods, and in different entities, different beings, not just different ways of thinking about God." So that was his approach. Uh, obviously, the Christian Church did not follow this approach, did not accept it. Uh, one thing that I find important to bear in mind is that the reason Marcin was pushed in that way was not just some you know, pagan humanism uh, and love of people, but it was his reading of Jesus and his reading of Paul that pushed him in that way. So in a way, those texts became morally problematic because people were reading the ethical teachings of Jesus and the writings of Paul. So in a way, it started as an in-house tension. It wasn't the pagan philosophers, when they criticized the scriptures, did not take these texts. In antiquity, those texts weren't as shocking as they are to us today because the moral compass was different. It hadn't been shaped in the way our compass has been shaped. So I think that's quite important to also take into account that it is the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Paul that made these texts problematic in the first place. Uh, Now, in more modern days, you know, people have sometimes talked about a God who develops morally in terms of process theology, or a God who is cruel and unjust. Some Jewish rabbis, post shoah have come up uh, with this approach to theology, Uh, or, of course, fairly uh, obvious solution to many of our contemporaries, which is well, there just is no God, so you know, (laughs) the the problem goes away to some degree. if you denied exit, now you'd get a whole bunch of other prob- uh, problems, of course. But um, now, the Christian church has not adopted, embraced this approach. Um, and I think the structure of Christian reasoning is not that we reason our way to the goodness of God, but we reason from the goodness of God. The goodness of God is bedrock, foundation, You see this for instance in Genesis 18 when Abraham um, sort of haggles with God over the destiny of Sodom and says, should not the judge of all the earth do right? And he's completely convinced that God will do right. And Paul uh, in Romans, very similar says, you know, is God unjust? Far be, so it's it's the goodness, the justice of God is a bedrock assumption for Christian moral reasoning. It's not something we arrive at. So the Christian church, Uh, rejected uh, this approach, then the next logical option would be to deny premise true, true, namely that the Bible is true. And that again goes back to antiquity, also second-century teachers to today are often called Gnostics, it was a whole different variety of teachers who are now labeled in this way, but essentially what they argued then and what many argue this day is, well the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is a mixed bag well, there's good stuff in it, but also bad, and you just have to be discerning. And they developed early on, already 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, Ptolemy, the Gnostic teacher of the 2nd century, the Pseudo-Clementines. So, well, you know, maybe the words of Christ can be a criterion for weeding out the good and the bad. So this is also an ancient approach. It is also not an approach that has gained the assent of the faithful and of the Christian church. Um, I think primarily because it was so different from the way that Jesus was reading the scriptures and therefore his disciples were reading the scriptures and the disciples' disciples. So um, Augustine, the great uh, fifth century scholar, uh, Christian scholar, uh, has I think a, a very good way of saying where the danger lies if you yourself become the moral arbiter of Scripture. And this is how Augustine phrases it. Uh, that's, uh, he's writing to Faustus, a and bishop there. he says, interpreting the Bible in such a way, this is what you're doing, as to remove all authority from the heart of the Scriptures, and to make each person his own authority for what he approves or disapproves of in any Scripture. That is, each person is not subject to the authority of the Scriptures for his faith, but subjects the scripture to himself with the result not that something is pleasing to him because he finds it written in the lofty authority, but that it seems correctly written because it has pleased him. I think very, very perceptive. Good old Augustine, a very sharp thinker, and says, well, this is, this is what's happening, you know? And, isn't that, and it's so tempting. I mean, we all do it. We, honestly, we all do it, more or less. You know, when the scripture agrees with us, we're really excited about it. We're less excited when it fundamentally disagrees with us, what, even in terms of what we want to do or whatever. And so this is just psychology 101. But Augustine says, if this becomes your theological principle, you're in deep trouble because you have a God who can never disagree with you. You have a God who is an idol. You have made God in your own image. You are actually God and the arbiter of good and bad, and that's not a good place to be in. So I think uh, very perceptive criticism there of Augustine of this approach. Which leads me to denying of the premise three, which we've said that was the premise, the intuition, moral intuition that many of us have, is that genocide is atrocious. You know, it's wrong always and everywhere to slaughter men, women, and children indiscriminately. And the reason goes like this, since God is good, and all his commands are just, and since God did command kherem, Kerem, today's language genocide, is not an atrocity if, and only if, commanded by God. Now I think the logic of this position is robust. Um, It's in, in, in the field of ethics, you know, there's virtue ethics, and you know, all consequentialism, all sorts of. And this this would be a form of divine command theory of ethics. It goes back to if you remember your early philosophy, Socrates' Euthyphro uh, dilemma, where Socrates asks, uh, "Is do the gods love the good because it is good, or is something good because the gods love it?" And uh, and if you say, well. Uh, if something's good because the gods love it, it seems arbitrary. You know, what if, what if the gods decided to love, rape, and war, and stealing tomorrow? Would that then be good? So instead of, that, that kind of is what, what Socrates puts forward. But then, if you say, well, the gods love it because it is good, there is a standard of goodness that's outside the gods. So you don't really need the gods to determine goodness. Now, in Christian monotheism, it changes slightly. In monotheism, it changes slightly. In Christian monotheism, I think, actually provides a robust and healthy account for divine command theory because God's commands aren't arbitrary but are rooted in his trinitarian nature of eternally self-giving and self-receiving love. So God commands what is good, but the standard of goodness is rooted in the essence of God. So, but that's a sidebar. Um, and so many famous theologians have essentially followed that uh, way of reasoning. And uh, we're just going to give you a, an example from the early church uh, for this uh, divine command theory. Let's say here we have John Chrysostom, you know, the golden mouth preacher of the ancient church, uh, one time Archbishop of Constantinople, uh, put it like this It is God's will. And not the nature of things that makes the same actions good or bad. What is done in accordance with God's will is the best of all things, even if it seems to be bad. What is done contrary to God's will and decree is the worst and most unlawful of all things, even if men judge that it is very good. Suppose someone slays another in accordance to God's will. This slaying is better than any loving kindness. Let someone spare another and show him great love and kindness against God's decree. To spare the other's life would be more unholy than any slaying. Boom, so he's clearly, you know, this is where he's going with his approach and Augustine takes this kind of reasoning and applies it directly to Joshua and says, Joshua did no wrong in killing all these Canaanites because he was commanded by God and God can command no wrong. So the logic, I think, is very strong and the Christian better, pedigree of this kind of uh, resolution to the issue is also extremely strong. So you have you know, Chrysostom reasons in this way. He doesn't apply it specifically to those texts. So it'd be a a church father revered in the East. Augustine, the most influential father in the West. Uh, Following Augustine, the next most influential theologian in the West is Thomas Aquinas. Takes the same line of reasoning, uh, various uh, parts in, in his Summa. Uh, and then probably the next most influential theologian in the West, uh, John Calvin. Same uh, line of reasoning, for instance, in his commentary uh, on Joshua. So it's a very, um, a strong tradition of uh, resolving it in this way. So, and I think logically it holds together, but, but it's still, does it sit right? That's the question, you know, does it really, is it really true to God's self-revelation uh, in Christ as attested in the scriptures? And, and that is something obviously people wrestle with, and, and that's why I think, yes, it's logical, but um, does it take sufficient account of the fact that our moral intuitions that say, this is so deeply problematic, the killing of infants, the killing of old people, the killing of men, women, and children, this is so deeply that this intuition is not coming just sort of from the Enlightenment, but this is actually shaped by the teaching of Jesus. This is actually shaped very much because we have the Sermon on the Mount. These texts have become so problematic because our moral imaginary has been shaped so profoundly by the life and teaching of Jesus. And I think so that tension, if we My view is, if we give it up too quickly, are we too quickly settling for a logically stringent explanation and too quickly dismissing a moral intuition that is deeply and profoundly shaped by the life and teaching of Jesus? You know, question for you, this is, you're all adults, you're all mature, you can resolve this for yourself. I'm throwing it out there for you. Now that's the, and I think that's, that's the most profound question we as Christians have to ask, are we taking seriously the witness in all of scripture, and are we taking witness, the witness of God incarnate in Jesus Christ seriously with this approach? There is a second question that I'm also interested in because I, I'm very glad that most of my conversations when I talk about matters of faith that do not happen exclusively within the Christian fold, but very much with people who are skeptics and seekers and, and, and whatnot. And, um, and it, it has to be clear to us, and we have to remind ourselves, that almost any explanation at all is more persuasive to our contemporaries than this one, unless they have a very, very, very strong conviction that A, God exists and is good, and that B, that the Bible is the faithful and true record in all aspects of what this one and true God did. So for most of our contemporaries, they say, okay, so you're telling me I either have to believe that this book, thousands of years old, by written largely by anonymous authors a long time ago, is completely ethically right on in every aspect, including the killing of men, women, and children, because God commands it, either I believe that or I believe that the killing of men, women, and children is wrong. It's not a hard choice. The book will always lose for most of our contemporaries. We just have to be aware of that. I'm not saying that this is how we should reason, but I think it helps us to know how completely implausible this sounds to anyone who doesn't share the the conviction that either God exists and is good or that the Bible is infallibly true. Um, The best way of being sensitized uh, to this is to read my former neighbor in Oxford, a very eloquent man, not always a very kind man, Richard Dawkins. And uh, there there (laughs) there, there is an article in The Guardian, and honestly, if you think about this, you must read this article. It's a masterclass in polemics. It's a masterclass in underhandedness. It's a masterclass in nastiness. But it's also a masterclass in effective rhetoric. So you should, we're not allowed to play these games in the same way. I almost said, unfortunately, but actually it is fortunate. You know, we don't have to play these games. We're not doing this. We're not doing that homonyms. That's not, but I mean, listen to this opening paragraph. It's called, Why I Refuse to Debate with William Lane Craig. So William Lane Craig, outstanding philosopher of religion, maybe the most influential philosopher of religion alive today. Uh, And um, they wanted to do a debate in Oxford between Dawkins and Craig. And people said, maybe Dawkins is afraid because Craig is smarter than he is. So finally Dawkins wrote an article in The Guardian. And then the subtitle is, this Christian philosopher, in quotation marks, is an apologist for genocide. I would rather leave an empty chair than share a platform with him. He's an apologist for genocide. And actually, I'm going to spare the beginning. It's just, it's great ad hominem, read it yourself, you know, read it and be amazed. Um, but he, he then basically takes a few passages where there is some divine, combined theory type approach to the Canaanite texts in William Lickreed's writing. And his final uh, two paragraphs are Would you shake hands with a man who could write stuff like that? Would you share a platform with him? I wouldn't, and I won't. And if any of my colleagues find themselves browbeaten into a debate with this deplorable apologist for genocide, my advice to them would be to stand up, read aloud Craig's words as quoted above, then walk out and leave him talking, not just to an empty chair, but one would hope to a rapidly emptying hall as well because moral decent people will recognize the abhorrent nature of what this man is advocating and has written, and they will be so disgusted they will leave. So again, it's polemics, it's underhanded, but it's effective. I think 1,400 comments uh, under that article. And you can guess who they're siding with. So, um, so I think it's, just, it's good for us to, to know the plausibility structure is very different inside a community that has a strong intuition and belief that God is good and the Bible is true and outside. Okay, Uh, more things to say, but for us, theologically, I think more important, is it true to to the intuition that is shaped by the Sermon on the Mount? Now, there's a further way you can go. You can also look into the observation that according to the Bible, God commanded and commanded genocide, And you do what, you know, any good pastor, any good Bible study leader teaches you to do. Read the text and be careful not to assume that you already know what the text says. Read the text carefully. Have you read it carefully enough? So, okay, then you go back. Now you'll notice there are these confusing things things where in, uh, okay, this is five Moses is... Deuteronomy in English, uh, clearly bilingual slides. You're a smart crowd. Everybody can speak German, right? You're all theologically interested. You've read your Bultmann and your Bart, and, you know, whatever. Um, so hope, hopefully not. But annihil- annihilating or driving out. So in Deuteronomy, it talks about annihilation. In Exodus, it talks about driving out. Still driving out, not applauded by the UN, but different to annihilating, Right? So there's, there's a strong difference whether you drive people out or whether you actually command it to wipe them out, root them out. And then, no survivors. So you have cities like Debir. So Joshua 10 has had one of the long lists of places that are wiped out. No survivors. Joshua 15, and in Judges 1, people are living there. So what happened? I thought they were all wiped out. Why are they there again? Hmm. So is it, what's going on? You read the text carefully. And then, you know, there is this oftentimes it says all Israel was assembled, all Israel. And this all Israel, then, are we really to picture each and every individual or is this a manner of speaking that was understood by everyone at the time? So those kind of things are just linguistics observations, careful reading of the text. Then there's archaeology. There's um, an evangelical Old Testament professor who has put forward an argument published an argument about uh, Jericho. And he says, well, actually, my reading of the Hebrew and my reading of the archaeological record is that it is just as plausible when we, when we think we, we read of Jericho being a city, Hebrew ear, um, we picture something far too big. And what the text could also mean is a military fort that might not have had more than 100 people in it, mostly soldiers, and perhaps. What civilian could be there if there's all these male soldiers? Oh yes, perhaps a prostitute. So anyways, that's his argument. If this argument is successful, I'm not claiming that it is, but if it is successful, or at least if possible, it would really change the picture, wouldn't it? If Jericho had mostly soldiers in it, and one civilian family, the family of a prostitute, and they get spared, we feel differently about the text. So it shows you there, There might be room for looking at it in different ways. Now, if you zoom out from this detail of individual expressions or the archaeological record and say, what what kind of text is Deuteronomy? What kind of text is Joshua? Now, Joshua seems to be an ancient Near Eastern conquest account. And then you might compare it to other ancient Near Eastern conquest accounts and you might find out the first... Um, written reference to Israel as a people says, uh, a pharaoh says, I have completely destroyed Israel. I've wiped them out. Now, uh, we know that this is not the case. (laughs) Israel survived. So clearly the pharaoh was bragging about some military victory and using the term I've wiped them out, I've destroyed them. And yet, what he referred to was a victory, decisive victory. And if you read these ancient Near Eastern Conquest accounts, you find very often they say, well, I wiped them out, I left no survivors. These kind of stock phrases are used to describe effective victories. So, for instance, if at the end of the day you read the Nationals annihilated the Astros, you don't picture how many people are in a baseball team? Nine? What is it how many? You, how many are in a team? Like... How many are on the field? Nine, exactly, nine, so I thought, you don't picture nine dead Texans on the field, right? But you think, decisive victory, you know, boom, you know, drew the series. But so, it's like sports language, and we annihilate them. And people would know this is figurative language, this is hyperbole, Uh, everybody would know, nobody would expect, so is there, is hyperbole part of the genre that we're encountering here? What is being said and done? Is this part of near instant Conference accounts? account? Then, is it possible that some some of those words are used metaphorically from the very beginning? So there are two British Old Testament scholars, both of them, so very evangelicals, so very sympathetic to evangelicals, Nathan Macdonald and whatever whoever his teacher was come to me in a moment but uh, saying in at least in Deuteronomy 7 there's a strong case to say harem here functions uh, as a metaphor for purity uh, in, in worship and in walk so you know is the argument successful at least it's possible smart people have made it which begs the question have we read the text carefully enough um, and then you can go further and say well actually what and th- thats so you can come in from a literal anthropological, a perspective how do text functions, what are texts intended to do, or from a theological uh, reflection on the role of scripture, what is the, for what purpose has the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures, what is the authorial intent of the Holy Spirit in giving us these texts, uh, both the laws and the narratives and so on. Of course, that's, those are big questions, but questions we should be asking. So you can see that there are a lot of questions that can be opened up, that in a way we have perhaps assumed when we constructed our problem, we assumed we had answers to all this, and we knew, okay, this is what it this is what it says, this is what it means, this is you know how it all functions, and therefore this is the problem we have, the dilemma of the five. And perhaps we have assumed too much. That's just what I'm suggesting. You know, Opening up a little bit. Now the interesting thing is, this, there's a, an. Interesting approach, it's probably heretical, I'll mention it anyways, because you're all adults and you have sound pastors who will teach you to come back from the, the ways of heresy. There's a gentleman called, mm, Douglas Earley is his name, he wrote a book, The Joshua Delusion, and he writes from an evangelical background, as far as I can tell, and essentially his argument is that if we um, focus on Joshua as history writing in the modern sense rather than as community-forming holy scripture inspired by God to form a people for holy living, then we're focusing on the wrong thing. And perhaps he goes so far in there, you know, he goes so far, maybe we should be agnostic historically. I mean, a whole kind of forms. like, where would that leave us? What's... And then Jesus arose into the preaching of the church only. So immediately we go down the slippery slope to nothing is left of the gospel. That's why I said it's probably heretical, but, you know, you can deal with a bit of heresy on Tuesday evening and uh, being soundly rooted. But so, sort of that's, you know, that's sort of the field of reflection that, that is going on uh, around this. And what why I found this interesting, because where he ends up um, is... Very similar to what was probably the stable and, in the preaching of the church, certainly the most influential reading of these texts for a millennium, which was to read these texts in the form of the preaching and certainly in the application of the church as purely spiritual. So you can trace it back to Clement of Alexandria and then uh, his student origin, Prudentius, an early Latin Christian poet. Uh, Augustine in his preaching, Gregory the, Gregory the Great, John Cassian, sort of the father of monastic spirituality, Isidore of Seville, and then the Glossa Ordinaria. So it's a, so it's a stable way of reading these texts, which essentially goes like this. I'll give you some of the early... Well, um, I'll show it to you first and the way, the way it turns out. Uh, so the Glossa Ordinaria, I don't know, you've perhaps never studied it, but it was, who of you has a study Bible? You know, I've come across a study Bible, a number of you. So in in medieval times, there was one study Bible that all educated um, interpreters of the Bible, that was if they had something, that's what they had. And it looked like this. In the center, you had, I'll show you here, the next, you had in large print, the translation of the text uh, in Latin, the vulgar, Vulgate translation, and then you had small comments in between, that was the interlinear linear gloss, so glosses, comments, uh, drawn from what earlier church fathers had said, and then you had the marginal gloss, so this blows up what's over here. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 5, and here it begins, you know, uh, when the, the Lord your God introduces in the land that uh, you are entering to possess, then you should destroy, deliver it, uh, the many nations. Before, uh, when he has destroyed the many nations before you, uh, and then there's the name of the nations, seven nations, multis maris, uh, a lot more numerous than you. So this is the text we read before, actually. And then... Look what it does, you can probably not read it, but here it says the seven nations are the seven principalia vizia, the seven principal vices, or the seven deadly sins, uh, and their offspring, and then it repeats it again, the seven uh, deadly sins and their offspring. And if you go to the marginal gloss, uh, Isidore of Seville is quoted, Saint Isidore as he was then, Septem gentes sunt septem principali avitia. The seven nations are the seven deadly sins. And for the theology geeks here, it's significant that he says sunt and not significant. So there's this big debate in the 16th century about whether when Jesus says this is my body, he means this signifies my body or this is my body. So significant or as anyways. But so there's this reading, this understanding, this this is really what it is about. This is about the seven deadly sins. So this goes back to this, that's the spiritual reading, which, um, switching back from Dawkins, to an example of how this is phrased in the, uh, in the preaching, really, of the church. So, um, and, and to show you that, the reasoning, how they arrived at this, how they resolved the tension. One early Christian preacher writes, unless those physical wars, the wars of the Old Testament, bore the figure of spiritual wars, I do not think the books of Jewish history would ever have been handed down by the apostles to the disciples of Christ, who came to teach peace, so that they could read so that they could be read in the churches. For what good was the description of wars to those to whom Jesus says, my peace I give you, not avenging your own self, suffer offense. So so this preacher says, okay, I accept that the apostles' decision to hand to us the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, is correct, and we are meant to read them in the church. This is a given. I'm a faithful son of the church. We have received the scriptures that we're meant to read them. This was the apostles' decision. They learned it from Jesus. They passed it on the disciples. Therefore, the Jewish scriptures have authority. They're the Old Testament. They're the word of God. That's a given. But then he says, also, it's a given that Jesus is paramount, and he told us to love our enemies, to not avenge ourselves, and so if this is how we are meant to live and follow the example and teaching of Jesus, and yet we are to read this text of warfare, I can only conclude that the texts of warfare must have a deeper meaning, a spiritual meaning, and really point to spiritual warfare. And the way he does this is basically going to Paul, saying, look, Paul uh, says some of the things in the Old Testament are said to them in... A figurative way and they're meant for us and then he sees where Paul interprets figuratively so he understands himself both the approach to read it spiritually figuratively he sees it in Paul and then he says um, well what does it mean for us Ephesians 6 our warfare is not against flesh and blood but it is against the spiritual uh, forces rulers of the darkness and, and this is who our enemy enemies so this is what it is about now I should add, the early church did not think that these texts weren't historically true. That's not what they thought, that's not what they taught. And their, their argument was more like, what is the significance that we have to affirm and that we should ascribe and learn from in these texts? So it was slightly different. Uh, in terms of how they approached it. And this reading was the stable reading. And the the interesting thing is you can read sermons preached in the third century in Caesarea uh, about these texts. You can read, there's a sermon series preserved, preached around 240 AD, preaching throughout, through the book of Joshua. You can read it, I read it in this iconic building that you all have seen, the, the Radcliffe camera, this beautiful library in Oxford, that's where it was. I was reading it there and my soul was nourished you know, I heard the preacher preach, and I thought, this is a pastor feeding his congregation from the reading of Joshua. And and the, the application, we would call it today, is, is, is that what he drew from the text. So I'm coming into land. I've uh, opened at least three cans of worms. I lost count halfway through, uh, and perhaps in the Q&A we can close some of them again. Um, there are two more things I'd like to throw out that we really if we do a proper analysis of this and develop a robust theological approach to these questions, then I think we ought to ask our question, does God make himself more clearly understood by his people over time? And, um, And with that comes the idea of accommodation. Calvin, for instance, develops this The idea of accommodation means that God stoops down to our level to reveal himself, and he does that, uh, of course, by speaking in human language and speaking in a language that can be understood by the people at the time, so entering into that frame of reference in in which people live, otherwise communication would not be successful. But he also accommodates um, the recipients of his revelation morally, the chief example, for a good example for progressive revelation would be uh, the, uh, at, at one point in his career, King David takes a census, right? And this is described twice. Once in texts that are by common uh, agreement, the earlier texts, so in, uh, in uh, the books of Samuel, uh, it is said that the Lord, incited David to take the census, and then he punished him for it. And then if you read it again in Chronicles, it says Satan incited David, and then he got into trouble. You're like, okay, so last time I thought about this, I thought the Lord, Yahweh, and Satan were not synonyms. (laughs) You know, so so what's going on here? What, What has happened between this older text and this newer text, has there been a clarification of what is going on, where the earlier text is true in that sense that nothing happens that God does not permit, and in the end, this world is God's world, so God oversees everything, though has there been now a clarification and understanding there is an enemy of our souls, and sometimes the, the per, God, God's permissive will might be at work, but the active will... Moving people in that direction is actually best not ascribed to God's activity but to the adversary. So that may be an example of progressive revelation where things become clearer over time. Now, accommodation, the prime example comes from the words, from the mouth of our our Savior Himself. When he is asked about divorce and remarriage, um, you know, he, as we know, he says, you know, this is this is what uh, God's intention is, and uh, and people say, well, but why then did Moses command us to do that, to send away a woman? And Jesus says, Moses commanded this to you because of your hardness of hearts, but in the beginning it was not so, not God's intent. What Jesus does here is absolutely shocking and radical. Jesus takes a command of Torah and says, yes, Moses did command this to you, but actually, that was not the perfect will of God. That was an accommodation of your sinful hearts. So that's, and then you're like, whoa. So should we limit this and say, this was just this one-off incident where there's something in Torah, the highest authority, the law, that was given as a concession to the hardness of human hearts, not representing the perfect will of God, or is it possible that, that principle of accumulation, even on a moral level, could apply to other texts. And so that takes very, very careful theological and exegetical work because it could very easily become a wax nose you know, like Augustine. You don't like it? Oh, it was just accommodation. Now we know better. You know, now we're much smarter. And then, so then it's just you know, it becomes a mirror. Like I look in the in well, and it looks just like me. Hey, God's moral intuitions are exactly like mine. What a coincidence! How wonderful! And and of course, that's absurd. So so I think, and and that that's the, the end point. So so I, I think sort of the Skilla and Charybdis, You know. Uh, the two horns uh, of the dilemma, or the two dangers, uh, that are perhaps equal and opposite—I don't know—are as follows. So, on the one hand, there's Augustine saying, "Be very careful not to just try and make problems away because they don't suit your predilection and what you would like to be true." And so, this is when I, when I read these texts, I, you know. I always want to hold this before me and say, it God is holy. God is to be feared. God is the judge of all the earth. God has the right. He's the giver of life. He has the right to take life. And to sort of read these texts in a way that bring home to me the fear of God and to tremble before God and say, Wow, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So as I read them spiritually, as I read them for my own devotional life, as I reflect on them theologically, I want to heed. This testimony of the church, and say, I want to, I want to tremble before God, and allow these texts to challenge me. At the same time, I also want to hear this, this intuition, you know, based on the Sermon on the Mount, based on Jesus, and and the fact that whoever observes what Jesus' hands do observes the hands of God. Whoever looks into Jesus' eye looks into the eyes of God. Whoever listens to Jesus' words, hears the very words of God. And to see, is this really, you know, this moral intuition that is shaped by the teaching and example of Jesus, how does that play into it all? Uh, and there is this other danger, which another early church writer wrote in one of his books: If we over-interpret texts in a wooden, literal sense, which are Meant to be read in a spiritual sense, we may end up believing such things about God as would not be believed of the most savage and unjust of men. So the danger would be that because we're committed to a certain reading of the text that may or not be justified, may or may not be justified, we are rather sticking to our way that we think we should read this text and are saying things about God that actually fundamentally misrepresent his character. And I think that is almost an equal and opposite danger of the other. So I think it's in that field that we as Christians approach these texts. And so and I still find myself thinking so what what is it? What you know the question When were these texts written? Who were they written for? What was the authorial intent of the humans writing them? What's the authorial intent of the the Holy Spirit uh, behind them? All those questions, I think, come into play. So I can tell from your faces that I have achieved uh, what I set out to do, namely to thoroughly confuse you and to give you many more questions than you had at the beginning and to make your problems much more severe than they were earlier on. And so, as a good apologist, I'm well pleased with my work, and I'm now also very happy to take your questions. Thank you for your attention.
2: Great to have you back, Christian.
1: Thank you, Randy. (laughs)
2: Um, I got here a half hour late, Mm. so this may not be a very well-informed question, but, uh, I've always wondered about the connection between the genocide, um, that you're talking about and, uh, Romans nine and God's sovereign, um, choice and, uh, Things like vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, Romans 9. Talking about making a choice between Jacob and Esau while they were in his mother's womb before they had done good or bad. And uh, and so <clears throat> is it possible that this was in the Old Testament an expression of God's sovereign choice of the Israelite nation and his decision to destroy those who were not in his choice in a sense that um, we see in Romans 9 that uh, he makes sovereign choices over all people and deciding who will or who will not be preserved. and who's prepared for, to be a vessel of destruction? That kind of—I mean—they're both obviously difficult texts. Um, but just curious, what your yeah, so is I, on the... I
3: I
1: wouldn't connect them uh, in this way. Um, so my approach was to see what the Christian Church has said about these texts. I haven't come across any of the. Um, church fathers or any of the influential theologians to quite connect it in that way. And I think partially because the Old Testament actually connects it very much with Canaanite practice. Uh, You know, the the offering of infants uh, to Molech uh, and and sort of a a level of uh, depravity uh, that has much more sort of saying, well, this is the consequence of it. I think that would be more following the, the grain of the text, right? Uh, I, I wouldn't connect the two personally. But of course, I mean, in, it always depends on if you if you pick a system and are committed to the system, and of course uh, uh, that, that would be a, a systematic approach to, to reading texts, uh, then it, it will fit many texts, but I'm not sure that it, it comes from the exegesis. I would more, or, anyways, yeah, so. I wouldn't connect it two, but it's an interesting thought.
4: Christian, thank you for your presentation. Um, you talked in the beginning about the term harem from mm. Hebrew, um, which is typically translated as devoted to destruction. It, it carries that semantic idea. Um, I wondered if you could comment, if you're familiar at all, with uh, John Walton's take on this word uh, in his book uh, the Lost World of the Israelite Conquest, he offers a definition of harem not as devoted to destruction, but rather this idea of destroying the identity. And so instead of the taking of a life, the thrust is rather the destruction of the influence of, of the ways of these people in in their identity. So I, I was wondering if you're familiar with that idea, if you have any critiques of it, or any comments to make on that. I'm
1: familiar with the idea, but not... Uh, profoundly, partly because it uh, came out after I'd finished my, uh, my work, but I, I have read the book I've engaged with it. Um, I mean, would be, if he's right, that would be great. I, I'm just not <laughs> confident enough that he
3: is, but uh, I hope he is. So I, I don't know if he's right either. I'm just, I'm curious what your thoughts
4: are.
1: Yeah no, so I, I, I do hope he's right. I'm not confident enough that he is right that I would base my argument on it. But I would uh, I'd throw it out there, it's possible. It's sort of in my longer notes, uh, his, his, his book is referenced. And uh, that would be another of the contemporary exegetical approaches that could be helpful. Uh, and in a way, it, all those, his approach, Earl's approach, and so on, they sit well with the spiritual reading approach that was the dominant approach of the church. And the thing about the, oh, yeah, I have a beautiful final quote that I forgot here. Look, the, this, is, this comes from this sermon series I mentioned, 242 Caesarea. Uh, Christus patim et ex ipse bellorum. Christ teaches us peace through this reading of war. And that has been a stable way of reading it. And I think that's sort of what the Christian church did well, but it didn't do it exclusively because these texts later, I have a chapter in my book about how these texts were then later used in the Crusades, uh, in the Inquisition, and so on to justify violence in the name of God. So, So I think there is this. Peaceful, non violent way of reading that was the dominant reading, that is the reading that dominates the Glossa Ordinaria for a thousand years, that is a a powerful piece of our heritage that we need to recover and definitely embrace because these texts still have the potential to be inflamed in violence. And actually, you know, this church in particular, Church of the Resurrection, I mean, has this very strong connection to Rwanda and one of the (coughs) Ten Commandments of the Pahutus telling them to root out the Patutsis sounds almost verbatim like Deuteronomy 7. You shall show them no mercy, you know, to the Patutsis. So these texts are resonant and, and they, they can be reactivated. So what the church definitely needs to have very strongly is, and that, that's a problem with Christian just war theory, It was not only the redress of grievances, which Augustine allowed for, that became the most dominant form, but from Augustine and then all the way through into the Middle Middle Ages, early modern times, there was a second form of war that was just, namely a war deo Jubente, a war that God commanded. And so that, so that, 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 that tradition seeped its way kind of in. Augustine opened the door just half an inch. He never developed it. But boy, (laughs) that door got opened uh, towards the crusades and so on. So we have to be very, very careful. So that's my favorite quote uh, of those sermons on Joshua. Christ teaches us peace through these readings of war. That's good Christian reading.
3: Thank you. Good evening. I was wondering, in all of your research, um, because you mentioned most of these texts occur after the Israelites flee Pharaoh. However, I'm sorry, Egypt. But um, one of the things that was true in ancient Mesopotamian warfare was, and it sounds ridiculous to most modern people, is they would collect what we would consider idols, but were in fact viewed as physical manifestations of whatever particular god you were capturing and or defiling, as the case may be. So in that context, the commandment, thou shalt not have no other god but me, makes a very practical justification for any particular war and or root and branch extermination of a religious person. So I was wondering, uh, did you come across any such arguments to that nature and any responses to such?
1: So uh, I just wanna make sure I understand your question correctly. Uh, The argument would be that the command in the Ten Commandments, "Thou shalt have no other gods before you," uh, implies that there is a justification to uh, destroy, kill, annihilate any person of holding another religion. Correct. That would be the assumption.
3: And in, particularly in Mesopotamia, where the practice was to go in and find whichever idol represented the local deity and/or god, that would make far more sense. in many of the ways that you listed as interpreting the Old Testament.
1: Uh, okay, so I'm, I'm not sure how that would make... So literally, no.
3: if, if I just assume, for example, because you mentioned the Crusades and they talk about blood running through Jerusalem up to the bridles of the horses, for example, that would be, as you um, put it, sports speak. It's not, I don't believe that happened. It, but,
1: it's a quotation from the Book of Revelations, actually. Oh, That's what it is, Well, in that particular case.
3: I, they also used yeah. it for the Crusades, that's where I came across yeah. it. Anyway, the point, yeah. of, the point being, um, if people are predisposed just being people to execute by label and saying, you know, as, for example, the Taliban does, you are a Christian, so we're going to kill you because we don't agree with you. That's same thing, just other side of the coin but what I'm asking is in in the context of the Old Testament, is that argument ever made and was it ever addressed by any of the fathers that you mentioned?
1: Um, No, so I don't think the argument is made because that's not how I think the Israelites understood this command and it it wasn't, it was certainly not understood as a command to root out and kill all people of other faith. There's actually a lot in there saying, well, if you can make peace, you should sue for peace. Send several delegations, try and sue for peace and make peace with your neighbors who have different religions, but in the land it should be different. So it's it's, it's not a root and branch globally applicable uh, command. The command is limited to those seven nations, which of course doesn't make the problem go away, but I think therefore it's not tied to the Ten Commandments but it's tied to the specific cherem command, which comes into Deuteronomy. Okay, thank you. But thank you, no. And it is, I was agreeing with you, it is used in the conquest of Jerusalem, the blood going up to the bridles, but it is in there, they take the imagery from the book of Revelation. So it's very it's very, very much prevalent in, in that. Yes.
3: Thank you. Um, I had a question about the application of your model specifically, and perhaps the early church fathers Perspective on capital punishment in the Old Testament, so not a not a generic root and branch annihilation, but a very specific annihilation for the the laws that that existed in the Pentateuch that said, if you break these community standards, we will take your life, or God's commands in commendation. Yeah.
1: No. Well, so I think I mean I uh, as you know probably the the big danger in any doctoral research is that your topic broadens out to be about God, the universe and everything. So I did not look at all into capital punishment. So I know nothing about this, but I will still give you an answer because that's what we apologists <laughs> uh, do. Uh, because it, it picks up one thing that I t- did look into and that you'll be familiar with. Um, at times, including in the, in the Ten Commandments, there is this view that God will punish the children and the children's children for the sins of the fathers. But then also you find in the prophets, so no longer will this be the case. I will not punish the children for the sins of the fathers or vice versa, but each person will only be punished for their own sin. So it moves from sort of collective guilt and collective punishment to more individual guilt and punishment, which is the moral intuition that we've inherited from those prophets. And that is the basis of our, moral legal, uh, of our modern legal systems that it is, it's the individual who does or does not do something that is punished and not um, their descendants and, and, and that whole group. And I think that's where, that, that's where we, you could differentiate that capital punishment applies to the person who has become guilty and, and proven to be guilty according to the standards of evidence used, um, but doesn't apply to men, women, and children, young and old, infants, and so on. So I think there, you, you could say, those are related issues, but they are separate.
4: I just want to say thank you for this lecture. And I'd love to get your take on the big books that Greg Boyd wrote about this a few years ago, The, the, the Crucifixion and the Warrior God. And I'm assuming you probably, I think it veers too far into being into accommodation and maybe all, almost being Marcy Night, but I just want to get, get your thoughts.
1: Yes, uh, yeah, and my thought is the book's on my shelf, but I haven't read it, and uh, so I'm familiar. I'm familiar with the structure, and I think um, uh, it's. I've heard lectures on it, and I've sort of. I've uh, Matt would say I've interacted with the book, <laughs> which basically means I've opened it. So <laughs> smells like fresh print. Closed it. That's about my lever of So I can't really meaningfully comment. It is a book I want to read. But having done four years of focusing on this, I was very pleased to focus on the Trinity and the Incarnation for a while and not on it's, It is slightly more uplifting and, 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 and definitely more important. So, but thank you.
5: Uh, my question is about uh, the Second Samuel 24 text about David's census and the plague. And it just, given that we learn in that that that's where David is, purchases the threshing floor of around the, Je- the Jebusite, the temple is built there, the Holy of Holies is built literally there, which of course Jesus takes away at, on, on Good Friday. The whole thing just, the whole story, in, in looking back to the Old Testament census and then forward to Revelation, seems so integral to the whole history of salvation in the Scripture that I wonder if that, that, if that demands something more literal than just the, is what I understand you're talking about, the the spiritual reading. Is there an intermediate way to read it between the spiritual reading and the simple literal meaning of the text?
1: Well, I, I think I was but the point I was making there was just that in one text, it's the Lord who stirs up the insides David, and in another text, it's Satan, and that those two are not commonly treated as synonyms. So that, that begs the question, why is it Yahweh in one text, the earlier text, and why is it Satan in the next text? And, and I think that, to me, would be an indication that there is progressive revelation. That as the people of God journey with God, listen to God, uh, live in the scriptures, live with their God, things become clearer. And, and things are clearer in the time of Jesus than they were at the time of Melchizedek. So there is a progress in a way. So that would be, but, but I mean, uh, hey, th- salvation history. I'm for it, our God acts in history. And that's, that's, the, that's the huge danger of the spiritual approach, that it can become Gnostic and it's all just stories and what happened to God acting in history. So there is you know, a slippery slope, you should never follow, fo- follow it to the end, whether you can go three steps and still be safe, that's the question that is always difficult to answer. But thank you. Thank you. Oh,
4: Years ago, uh, I prayed with Christian one night and uh, I went on for about an hour praying. And then he started in three sentences of prayer and I fell asleep. So I'll try and not give a free association question here. But Christian, when I heard a colleague of yours, Peter Williams, I think come through Santa Monica and Los Angeles, uh, vindicating the ways of God to men through scripture, I think... um, as he dealt with these texts, I was really surprised. I liked how at the beginning of your presentation, you, you quoted Dawkins and an aggressive um, attack. Uh, and I know as, as what you're doing with Ravi Zacharias and such, you partly have to vindicate the ways of God to man. When I heard him going through these texts, I was really profoundly encouraged as he swiftly on the spot made it seemingly clear to me a relatively ignorant person compared to him about the scriptures and the texts and the people, but what atrocious people these were in general um, through actually t- texts in uh, the Torah. And when it was done emotionally, I felt somewhat vindicated in thinking that God was a good God and um, that the Israelites were kind of better people. I know it, it sounds simplistic in a sense, but. I wondered, actually, as you studied this yourself and wrestled with the scriptures and church history, um, did you feel confidently inside that the goodness of God was kind of ambiguous in these ways, but vindicated with Jesus later? Or, um, and and I think he touched briefly here, but one of the things that, as we see a progressive revelation of God, one of the things that fascinates me, and I saw it in my own life, I got a, behold, I stand at the door and knock version of Jesus. And as I got a little older, I got the Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And I still remember in my heart and brain utter confusion when I first saw those texts. But as the mentors and disciples and baton takers spoke to me as a a young child, they used the text to convince me that one sin makes you an awful person before a God who's so holy and righteous. So I'm gonna keep going for an hour and then let you give two sentences and I'm gonna fall asleep. So be quick, please.
1: Well, for context, uh, he was ins- insomniac at the time, so it was actually a miracle <laughs> that, that he found sleep. and. Uh, But uh, yes, Jono, thank you. Was there a question in there somewhere? (laughs) (laughs) And
4: uh, what was the question?
1: Yeah, no, so I think the fascinating take,
4: okay. Did your study of these texts convincingly vindicate you that you could stand them in front of young children and students and adults (laughs) with Ravi Zacharias and say, behold, this is a great God. This genocide is perhaps due each of you and you know, or now I'm pushing it a little, but how, how did you come to? Because you're here and you're smiling.
1: Yes, yes. So I mean, that that very final phrase, probably not my lead-in in, in most of my presentation that genocide is. Do you? But uh, but yes. So I am absolutely, fully persuaded that God is good, that the Bible is true, and that the goodness of God is to be celebrated. I am certain of it but why am I certain of it I'm certain of it because of God's self-revelation in the word made flesh that is the very basis from which I begin my theology god made flesh who lived who came to live among us dwelt among us uh, we saw his glory as of his uh, the only begotten of the father and he died for us he demonstrated his love in dying for us when we were yet sinners So that is the demonstration of God's love externally, but internally the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit gives witness to us that we are children of God. So it's both the external demonstration of God's love in God becoming man, and in dying for us, and being raised for us, Uh, and then also the experiential dimension to this love of God available to all of us if we turn to Christ and welcome the Holy Spirit in our lives. So that is is the basis for which my faith lives. It is nourished through the scriptures inspired by that spirit, who testifies to Jesus, the Word made flesh, and and that we are children of God. So so that is the basis for my confidence. And the way I read these scriptures, um, I still do not find them easy to read. If I go and picture an Israelite soldier going in and hacking a mother and her children, two and three years old, to death. I do not have it in me to say, you're getting your just desserts. And I find it hard to impossible to imagine the incarnate God, our Lord Jesus, with a machete in hand, hacking her to death and hacking her children to death. What I find possible is the incarnate God being stretched out on the cross, arms apart, saying, Father, forgive them, all of them, and let me drink the cup, every last drop of it. And (sighs) taking all the injustice, all the sin, all the alienation, all the guilt, all the shame, into himself, meaning God's self. That That is the hope. That is the God who I proclaim, who I believe in, that doesn't mean that the problem, I told you, it's not gonna be an easy answer. Problem's not gonna go away, but this is the basis. It's the cross, the crucified God from which I start doing my theology. God made flesh, crucified for us. And so, I read these texts. I think we should preach these texts. I think we should read them, and we should say, this is the word of the Lord, and we should say, thanks be to God. But we should also, like the psalmist, say, "Oh God, what is going on? I can't make heads or tails of it. This is so hard. I feel the tension in my heart. You know, help me uh, to wrestle with it. Help me to fear you, to, to fear you as a God who brings judgment, and to love you as a God who has taken the judgment in yourself. Uh, you know. So, and this is, you know, obviously the question: of What happens to this? To, to these?" Those who die in any of God's judgments, you know, what is their eternal destiny? Are we told? Are we certain? Can we have hope? You know, those are questions that I ask, and you know, here you go. You didn't fall asleep, so clearly, we're moving up in the world together.
5: Do any other ladies have any questions? Hey, Christian. Um, Hello, Annika. Hi. So, um, I f- I feel like you've sort of answered my question already, but I'll go ahead and ask it. Um, I was going to ask you what is your conclusion, but I think what I'm hearing from you a moment ago is it's not that you've landed somewhere um, and have a conclusion. It's that it's a process. So, if you wanted to add on to that, is my first question. And my second question is, you know, do you have any comments about the Midianite example?
1: The Midianites, so you uh, basically then Phinehas, you mean? Or what do you mean by. Well,
5: well, I mean, where it looks in the scripture, depending on how you read it, that God explicitly said, you know, kill all the male children, kill all the women who are not virgins. And it was after they were already captured. So there was no sort of relenting or, you know, Moabite situation.
1: Exactly, yeah. So, okay. Um, Okay, the first one, where have I landed? So, okay, if you. Uh, it depends on how it is uh, presented to me. So if someone comes to me and says, listen, you're a Christian, you believe, uh, you know, that God revealed himself in Jesus Christ and uh, the Bible is true uh, and then you have this text in there, you have to give up your faith because it's logically incoherent because of these texts. So if it's, if it's presented as a defeat to the Christian faith, then I think uh, what in thinking I need to do, I need to have at least one answer to show that this defeater is not successful, that I can be coherent and honest intellectually and still believe in the goodness of God and the truth of God, and and in this case, the truth of the scriptures, right? So all I need is one answer. If I can give more than one answer that shows that your defeater doesn't work and I can undercut it in two, three, four ways, all the better. So if I'm in that position here you are, I'm answering you, "Yeah, I'm still looking. Where did you go? Where did you go? She became invisible. She did the invisible woman. And women are usually invisible very often in our, in our societies, so, but you made the voice heard. Um, so So then I would say, a logically coherent answer is found in the line of Augustine, Aquinas, Calvin, Richard Swinburne of our day and age. That logically It is a solid answer. Those are some of the very brightest minds that the church has produced. Now, emotionally it might not be satisfying, but logically it tells me you think your defeater works, I'm telling you it doesn't work. But if I can say, well, I have this one logical answer, but I can also say it's also possible that I can uphold a a biblical and historic high view of scripture and Uh, say there is a better interpretation based on genre, based on lexicography, based on archeology, span based on theological interpretation, then I have two, and I might come up with a third one. And so in a sense, in order to respond to the one who says you must give up your faith, I, I don't have to pick. I need at least, actually I can even say I don't have one, but I still believe one is available to me, I just, even if I don't have it, I'm not going to have to roll over because I don't immediately have an answer to your clever question, but, but it's, I'm in a better place if I have at least one answer. If I have two or three answers, I'm in an even stronger place. So I think that's the question to the person who says, give up your faith, you're an idiot, you can't believe this, and be intellectually honest and rigorous. So there I think the Augustinian line is enough uh, and available, but others make it even better. But then there's the thing: how do I preach about it, and how do spiritually, what did, how do I relate to God through these texts? And here, yes, it's a process, and for me, it's really in a way, it's an oscillation. And I find like I'm going with Augustine, and I'm I'm listening and saying, you know, don't want want to have a wax nose, you know, speak to me, uh, let me meditate in it in this way, the fear of God, and then I hear, okay, so. But what if I'm overinterpreting, and what if I should read more spiritually? So what where would it take me there? So in a way, that's how I personally in my prayer life, in, in, in my reflection on the scriptures, I find myself oscillating, uh, trying to um, hear the Holy Spirit speak to me through both modes of reading. Okay, I think the time's up, but you know, no, I mean, if you were moving, I mean that would be deeply unfair, so.
2: Thank you very much for, uh, really enjoyed your presentation. Um,
1: Thank you, Thank, that's, in a, that's a great final <laughs> statement. So.
2: I find a lot of what you say about the spiritual reading persuasive and how Christ clarifies and ultimately is the, these, has the best meaning for understanding these texts. But um, could you talk about the picture of Christ presented in Revelation 18? He's, he simultaneously gives us the Sermon on the Mount. But and then in that text he's presented as the rider on the white horse in some ways almost parallel to Joshua, and so I don't think that negates anything you under you said. But how do you harmonize the two?
1: And I am glad you said almost. It's almost the same. So there's similarity, <laughs> and so I think uh, I, I I agree with you that or uh, you know I, I think that your question points us into in the direction that that is a revelation of Christ that we need to take seriously, and that is true, that is biblically inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that is so fundamentally part of the revelation that God is the judge, and God is the righteous judge, and there will be judgment. And actually, without this strong conviction that there will be a righteous judgment at the end, it's almost impossible, it is perhaps impossible, to really truly forgive our enemies and to forgo vengeance. Miroslav Wolf, of course, the exclusion and embrace, many of you will be familiar with this, is brilliant on this. You know, he's Croat, uh, son of Croat pastors, lost uh, family in the Yugoslav, post-Yugoslav wars. And basically says if you think that a God who foregoes judgment is a basis for peace and reconciliation, you probably have a very comfortable study at Harvard or Yale or any other nice institution but it doesn't work in the blood-soaked fields of warfare. The only way that you can say, I will not seek vengeance, I will not take the law into my own hands, even if I won't have justice this side of eternity, is you have the firm conviction that there is a God who will judge and that his judgment will be righteous. Now, of course, we also add to that, and merciful, please, because we know we too will be judged, so of course we say, in judgment, remember mercy, but without that, so that's profoundly part of the structure of our faith. We say it in the creed, from thence you shall come to judge the living and the dead, so Christ will be the judge, but will he send infants to hell because of the sins of their fathers? That, so that's why I say what you said, almost. Our convic- my conviction is that in each individual judgment, we will absolutely agree it is righteous. It is just. you know. And also, I believe, actually, we will see it as even merciful, because that's who God is. So that's why, but absolutely, you know, without the judgment of God, the whole thing really makes no sense. It's part of it. Thank you. Excellent. Thank, Claire. Thank you so much.
0: applause. Pastor Bo, would you just say a word about what this is before we say goodnight? Pastor Bo Parker from Christ Our Shepherd Church, and uh, this is a a neat little booklet on prayer. You might be interested in picking up a copy.
5: Uh, Yeah, first of all, if you want to find out more about it, there's trypraying.org, Uh, But real briefly, uh, this is a seven-day prayer guide for people who are not believers. Uh, It was started in Scotland about 10 years ago. It is all over Scotland. It has kind of taken off as an evangelistic tool. They have signs on buses, subway stations, and they're handing out these booklets all over the place. Uh, There's an effort to try to get it started here in the United States. So you saw the banner out front. There's a few churches around D.C. that have the banner. Uh, People in the churches are trying to hand these out to people. And so it's the idea that they just, hey, try praying. Uh, and Scotland and I say most people will pray. And so this is a seven-day guide to get people to try praying, which leads them into the gospel. So uh, we're a part of this with our banner out front and uh, have, have probably 30 of the things taken out of a little box that we've noticed so far. So people are grabbing them, and we just pray that God would use them. <laughs> yeah, there's if you see, there's booklets. We have them kind of all over the place. If you want to take one and uh, try praying yourself or if you want to give it to somebody, the idea of they, pray, they say to people, use it and then lose it. Um, use it yourself and then pass it on to somebody that you feel it might be effective with.
0: Thanks again for being with us tonight. You are dismissed. Have a great evening.